welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel, and I'm back in action, baby. He's back. <laughs> <laughs> He's back from uh, from saving the snow leopards. That's, yes, correct. No notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so... What we're going to do this week, it's going to be a bit of a different week because the moments we're going to be talking about are going to be moments that we hate in movies that we love, or maybe hate might be a little strong, but moments we don't like. And this is kind of a a pair, I guess, a twin to an episode we did quite a ways back, which was uh, moments we like in movies we don't, uh, which I think people like that one quite a bit. So mm-hmm. uh, we thought this would be a good reverse of that, good inverse. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's fun to think about, especially because, like, I think most of us, like, you know, people say no movie's perfect. Frank, I think a lot of movies that I do love actually are pretty darn close. But, yeah, there's a lot of films that one has strong feelings for and yet still has those nagging, don't know if I love that or this or yeah. that or these little things. And, you know, they stand out, especially the more you go back to them and everything else is, like, just uh, uh, serene and perfect and beautiful. And then it's like, Ooh, not sure about that though. Yeah. Um, I think we all understand. Did you uh, have those moments? Yeah, for sure. For putting together your list this week, did you, was it easy? Was it difficult? Um, It was, I think it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that hard actually. It kind of just kind of looked at my movie collection and, you know, thought about, uh, you know, which are the ones that just have those little moments? And there were some that came to mind right away. And mm-hmm. some I was a little iffy on whether it, it's a moment, <laughs> but we'll talk about it. That's I think fair. it'll make sense. Uh, the other thing this does, is this jives pretty well with a, a listener question that we had um, that Justin emailed into us. So thanks again, Justin. And his question is, are there any movies that you feel could be five stars? five out of five, but there's just one element that keeps you from saying such. And so we thought that actually fits in pretty well with what we're, what we're talking about today. Um, so I don't know that. And I think we can answer his question a little directly at the end, right? Cause his isn't necessarily talking about we're moments. We're going to be talking about specific moments we don't like, but, mm-hmm. and the movies we're talking about may not be ones we would consider five out of fives necessarily, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a, it's a fun, it's a little perfect pairing. So in a way, each of our picks is kind of answering the question to an extent, and then we'll give like a really sort of firm answer each at the end. Yeah. Um, and I guess one other quick disclaimer for my perspective in doing this is I kind of made two mini rules for myself for my picks. One is that I was going to avoid picking things that were just like problematic or like offensive in especially certain older films, because it would have been really easy to just do like three James Bond movies and be like, yeah, this bit's pretty racist. I don't like that. This bit's pretty sexist. I don't like that. And this bit's pretty imperialist. I don't like that. Overall, so like the, great films. Love them. Like the Breakfast at Tiffany's uh, rule, yes. we can call it. <laughs> yeah, but we'll, we'll, we'll call it the Breakfast at Tiffany's rule. Um, and in part because, I mean, a lot of online discourse, for good reason to some extent, but a lot of online discourse right now is, is like looking at media and finding elements that are aged poorly and like 
fixating on them and at times over fixating on them. And I don't know, didn't feel like the necessary thing for us to do. And also it was just kind of less fun. Um, And then the other thing is with each of my picks, I tried to pick something where like, I don't like the thing, but I've also kind of rationalized myself into defending it. Um, So I'll also be going through my (laughs) rationalities for each of the things I've, I've put forth where I'm like, yeah, it's kind of bad, but from this angle, maybe it's kind of good. So, well, to be honest, I think there's, I think there's a, like a good reason to do stuff like this, right? There, there's value in it, in uh, in kind of taking something that you love and maybe saying, okay, but I don't necessarily like this. And I don't necessarily like this because then you can, I think once you pointed it out very clearly for yourself, you can move on from it in a way. Yeah, that's a good point. Kind of um, like if there's a TV series you love and you point out with this, these couple episodes were just horrible. And then you kind of say, well, whatever, they were a bad episode. And then you can kind of just put it behind you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also think there's something to the effect of like, and not that this is always the case, but asking, well, I didn't like this. Why don't I like this? And also what's it doing? Why is it here to begin with? And then maybe um, understanding that choice a little bit more, even if you still have apprehensions with it. So yeah. some of my choices, I know why they were there. And I, that's kind of why it bothers me. So that'll be interesting. <laughs> Well, uh, that's that's as good a segue as any. Do you want to get into your Let's first pick? Yeah. So my first pick is going to be Star Trek. And the one I'm talking about is like the 2009 Star Trek directed by J.J. Abrams that kind of brought the series back. Um, and so with the interesting thing about the Star Trek is, yeah, they kind of rebooted the whole, the whole system because they rehired um, all the all the old rules, right? So they took brought back the original crew. And which I think a lot of Trekkies has had a lot of apprehension about as, as they would, uh, because these characters have been so beloved for so long and they've got their stories already. And so to take it back to, okay, well, now they're in the Academy. Um, well, are they're not going to be following the exact same story because otherwise what would be the point? But what they ended up doing is that they actually, instead of just completely straight up rebooting, so it's kind of like the second Star Trek, they actually tied it into the lore of the Star Trek, right? So they had a they had a storyline where characters came back from the future and ended up changing the timeline so that this is actually a fractured timeline, which I thought was pretty smart. Like, I thought that was a pretty good way to approach um, a rebooting of the series series like this in a way that still that doesn't negate everything that happened before that everybody loves and still kind of makes it part of that universe at the same time which is neat <clears throat> and there's a scene in star trek where this is kind of being laid out for us right where the characters are coming to the realization that this eric banna's villain character nero has come back from the future and um and anything that might have that his future isn't going to be the same future as their future. And they're coming to that realization. And then you get this line from Ohura where like Spock and Kirk and everybody, they're kind of laying out, kind of, you know, talking it through and figuring out what's happening. And then she's like, she has this one simple line where it's like, Oh, an alternate reality. And then it just cuts back to them. And it's, it's just so clunky. And, it's just a terrible example of like 
blatant handholding of the audience, like treating the audience like they're stupid, that they're not, oh, they're the people watching this are not going to understand what they're saying. We have to have somebody come out and very blatantly tell you exactly what they're what they mean. And I just it just drives me nuts. <laughs> I don't know. That's I don't fair. like when the when audience is treated stupidly, I guess. I definitely get why this one is here, though. Um, yeah, I do, too. Especially because you have to kind of, I'm sure from Abrams' perspective and the other filmmakers, there's like a million different audiences you need to please, where it's like you need to appease the Star Trek fans who are like hardcore about this and are like, and also have a lot of questions about like, well, how does this affect the the prime timeline? Like, does this mean those events never happen? Is this just an alternate like, is it a branching path? Like, what what are the implications of this for, what about all the other timelines we've seen in Star Trek? Are they not, you know, but then you've also got Joe Blow moviegoer who, like, kind of knows Kirk and Spock, but doesn't really know Star Trek, who is kind of maybe going into this assuming it's like a prequel. So, you know, like, that question of, it's kind of what we talked about with Evan last week on, uh, or uh, two weeks ago, or whatever it was, on uh, Marvel, and how... Mm-hmm. You know, there's the hardcore fans who live online and know every detail. And then there's the people who are like, so wait, does this connect to like Justice League? Or like, no, no, those are different companies that they don't cross over. Like for ordinary people, this stuff is, you know, they just want to have a good two hours and and that's it. So I end, I, not that I'm defending the line because I do agree it is a little bit like just, you know, clunky, but I understand it from a, okay, we need to cover a lot of different perspectives here and move on to tell the story. So let's just have Aura just spell out an alternate reality. Doesn't erase the others. What happened? It's not a prequel. It's just, it's a new thing with the old characters. So let's, let's, let's move on. I would almost argue though, that the people who would be in that position kind of wouldn't really care if it's an alternate reality or not though either maybe not i think they just enjoy the movie for what it is i don't know that it's necessary for them either but i I think more clarifying though to them that like this is not a prequel this isn't like yeah the phantom menace of how to you know lead into those other movies it's like branching its own new territory this opens up an interesting discussion though because the filmmakers very consciously chose to make this a alternate reality within the universe and not just a reboot and that feels like a really important choice but it also you start to think about okay so it's a science fiction film that's dealing with alternate realities and almost the butterfly effect thing of like okay if this ship comes in at this time how does that echo through history and change things and yet the films this one and the ones that follow don't really seem that interested in that as a sci-fi concept because it's also <laughs> like, if you're going to do an alternate reality, why not play with that? I don't know that they really wanted it for a concept to explore, though. I think they just wanted it for the freedom to yeah. not be tied into having to reach this point at this mm-hmm. this time and this point in this time. There's a great line from the old uh, Red Letter Media review for Star Trek from like back in like 2011 or 12, where... Mike is going through all of these questions that hardcore fans would have. And he says, you know, so what does it all mean? Well, I have an answer. The answer is nobody has an answer. And the point being (laughs) that it does not matter. Like they where he's saying like, do you think any of these people really care that much, but like where this fits in the timeline? Like not really. It's just an excuse for, um, you know, 
reopening possibilities because at that point, like Trek had kind of well, kind of closed in on itself, or like the old cast is way too mm-hmm. old at this point. The next gen cast is too old, and those movies kind of fizzled out. Enterprise was canceled after a season, and no one cares. It's like, well, what do you do? You've got this IP that's really popular. Like, what really can you do except go back to uh, to the fundamentals, but free yourself from the burdens of like the already existing universe? Yeah, definitely. And now it's back with a vengeance. Yeah, like like. <laughs> and now the movies are. It's stagnant. crazy. Yeah, yeah, and it's crazy how the shows are just taken off. Like, there's what five different Trek shows in production right now. There's yeah, there's so there's Discovery. Uh, Strange New Worlds, is that what it's called? Strange New Worlds is the new one, yeah. Lower Decks, the animated series. Um, There's another I... animated series that's like a kid's, like oh, specifically really? a kid's one, okay. like a Clone Wars kind of deal. And then there's Picard. And Picard, um, yeah. Which seems to be one of the most high profile and also one of the most controversial. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I like, enjoyed it. You enjoyed it? Okay. I did. But so And there's... Discovery discovery is wicked it's yeah it's so good yeah so there's I'm five trek it. shows and uh the movies have been in stasis since star trek beyond which i think is a shame because i really like that one yeah that was a good one i i still think they might come out with a fourth one at some point here soon i feel like they're kind of reaching the point where like if we don't do it soon it's not going to happen and yeah. i have a feeling most of the people involved would like to hey let's get it out there Mm -hmm. that's kind of what i'm feeling yeah they all seem still game for doing more um and the brand right now is doing well enough that you know i don't know you'd think they'd roll the dice on it and like honestly my hot take is that not only is star trek beyond the best of the three new star trek movies i think it's better than any of the disney era star star wars films wow <laughs> that's my take i think okay. Star Trek beyond is so much fun and it's just a it's not like a mind-blowing film yeah but it's a really solid star trek movie with good writing uh every, all the characters have good little stories and while it is still like an action movie and it's not like a really meaty science fiction plot it is a decent little story that wasn't just like a dumb action movie like star trek in the darkness was right the where beyond went really where they went with it with the idea of pairing up all the different characters into different groupings. I think that was smart because I kind of gave each character's interesting interactions you didn't really see from the other movies as mm-hmm. well as just allowing the characters to their own time to shine a little bit too. Yeah, and they feel like they all, I don't know if they all actually get their own little arcs, but most of them do. And because they're paired off, they don't all have to like, those arcs don't have to clash directly with each other. They can kind of resolve... Right in parallel and on their own and then everything comes together full circle but it's not you know they're not beholden to it because they're freed up by splitting everyone up yeah Star Trek yeah. beyond was good yeah well i like the first one quite a bit or the the first new one because i don't know that first that opening scene just grabbed me like mm-hmm. the, the one where kirk's where kirk's father is trying to save the ship and it's just i don't know it got me i didn't really realize that that was the kind of thing they were going for with this movie when i went in to see it um because i'm used to kind of the you know stodgier phaser one genera- fire yeah <laughs> yeah and yeah. so i was i was quite taken aback and it won me over in that first that opening mm-hmm. yeah i enjoyed the first one it's it's 
it's very fun. It kind of, yeah. again, it, it to me, it's kind of almost colored retrospectively by Into Darkness, which I thought was just like really dumb and loud. I liked it at the time, but it's not aged well at all. Um, but that first one is a very fun film and the sort of, um, it's slick and energetic and you don't really, you have a good time with it, which is maybe why the, an alternate reality stands out as being so clunky <laughs> because everything else is just so quick and fun. Yeah, it's pretty clunky. We knew, we already could figure that out. Yeah. Right, but thanks. All right. <laughs> well, I'll, uh, I'll transition to a film that I didn't know if I still loved until very recently when I rewatched it. And that's Joe Dante's 1998 film, Small Soldiers. So when I was like eight years old, this was basically the greatest movie ever made. It was like Toy Story, but with action because the toys are trying to kill each other. And that's awesome. Uh, have you seen Small Soldiers? No. Okay. I think I was too old for it when it came out. And most likely. Um, yeah. Just honestly, never really heard about it after that. So I will I will do my best to, okay. to pitch the film. The premise is that like a military uh, sort of weapons manufacturer buys like it starts like reaching out into the private sector and buying all these uh, companies under one corporate umbrella and one of the companies they've bought is a toy manufacturer and they have two different pitches one for like a alien toy that's like they're like these monster things but they're it's about learning and they come from this land and it's you know but they look weird and then the other is like army toys and so the guy's like all right let's just put these together the army toys are the heroes and they want to kill the monsters great and they put in developing these toys um a uh, microchip that is designed for like nuclear warheads. They put it into the toys. So they're like alive and uh, battery powered with one battery that will last forever. It will never run out. So yeah, they're functionally just like robots, but they're sentient beings. And, um, but it gets like the, the army toys, which are the commando elite are like, as much as they're ostensibly the heroes, they are bloodthirsty, like we will kill the enemy at any cost. And then the Gorgons, who are the monster toys, they just want to find their homeland. So you've got these horrific army soldiers trying to murder the good guy monster toys, and it's it's lovely. Um, I liked this movie for like the basic reasons one would like it as a little kid, because it's well, it's Toy Story, but they fight. It's basically the 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 best gremlin sequel third gremlins movie that never got made like that small hmm. scale the micro chaos that joe dante is so good too, at yeah. this movie is all about it and it adds weirder details too because the creatures are like robots essentially dante can get way more violent with what happens to them um because they're just toys so there's this weird like it's kind of hilarious when they get like ripped apart but there is a little part of you that kind of winces like there's one bit where one of the commando elite toys gets like cut in half trying to climb the main kid's bike and then it's and it's like a fun visual and how both like over the top it is but then how like you know it's toys but then you see him crawl over with just his torso to like his um his legs where like the radio receiver part of his toy is to like radio into the bad guy like i'm pretty messed up sir and they're like stitching him back together with tape it's this wonderful mix but um but rewatching the film for the first time uh, in years, just about a month ago, I was shocked by not only how well all that stuff held up and also the cast who are very like well-suited. And it also is, it helps that you've got David Cross and Phil Hartman and 
small roles here. It was actually Phil Hartman's nice. last movie, and he's hilarious in it. Are they like voices of the toys? Is no, that, they're they're uh, they're actually they're live in it? action. The oh, voices okay. of the toys. So all the uh, the Commando Elite are all voiced by actors from the Dirty Dozen, uh, except <laughs> really? for. Uh, Major Chip Hazard, the lead, who's Tommy Lee Jones, and one of the characters is Bruce Dern, who replaced uh, one of the Dirty Dozen actors who died shortly before production. But then all the monster toys, the uh, the Gorgonites, are voiced by the Spinal Tap actors. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. And there's not oh, really man. a reason for it, and you wouldn't really guess it from watching, but it's just such a... <laughs> except for the leader, who's uh, Frank Langella. So... Um, oh, so yeah, this movie's amazing. I'm, I'm sure I'm selling you and how good it is. And re-watching it, I was actually stunned by how well it held up as like a way more thoughtful movie about that as a kid I wouldn't have picked up on, but about like how war is sold to men and like young boys in particular from a really young age and the sort of values that come with that and how they linger and manifest into like adulthood of sort of... Um, I don't know, the uncritical and uncomplicated acceptance of like soldiers as the good guys who are doing the heroic things and, you know, things that are foreign and different and weird. That's the enemy. Um, and like the opening scene is like the commercial for uh, Globotech, which is the weapons manufacturer buying these corporations. And it straight up could have come from Robocop where it talks about like, now you can have the efficiency that the US military uses in the private sector. And it's like, this is like a Verhoeven scene. Um, <laughs> So yeah, Small Soldiers is great. Uh, highly recommend it. I think Tommy Lee Jones, even though I'm sure he didn't give a half ounce of crap about the work he was doing, is like shilling as the villain. He has a line in this film that I assumed was like a, a parody of something because there's a lot of like references to war movies. But apparently from my Googling, it's original to this line where Kirsten Dunst plays the teenage love interest and they have her tied up and the little commando elite Tommy Lee Jones doll is like, are you scared? We're all scared. You'd have to be crazy not to be scared. It's like, that's the most hardcore <laughs> line I've ever heard. And it's for a movie made for eight-year-olds. But okay. But there's something in this I don't like. So as much as I love the set, the satirical elements of it, Dante's style, the weird horror movie uh, influences and segments, the actual script that holds it all together is a pretty cookie-cutter um, sort of 90s kids movie uh in terms of like just very formulaic like the, the uh, conflict with the main kid and his parents is like he has a bad past even though he didn't really do anything bad and never does anything bad in the film and then at the end like right before the climax he has a fight with his dad where his dad's like i'm not gonna let you go out there and he's like there's no other way dad and technically it's paying off their conflict but like it's very just filling in the beats of a screenplay and to me the worst version of this is when um so Kristen Dunst, I mentioned, plays the female love interest. She is at the toy store with Alan, the main kid, and helping him fix stuff up. And then she starts talking about all these cool things she likes. Like, she doesn't like the crappy teen girl show on TV. She likes Led Zeppelin and cool stuff that boys like. And it reaches its nadir when Alan straight up says, you know, you're not like the other girls. And she goes, I know. That's like, man, they actually straight up say you're not like the other girls. Like, it's so... <laughs> just hacky writing. But I also said I was gonna kind of defend this stuff. So I have a kind of defense for this, um, even though it's it's thin. In a couple scenes earlier, when she's in the toy store with her younger brother, 
and the younger brother's talking about the toy he wants and she's like they're your parents our parents aren't going to buy this for you and he responds yes they will they buy you those stupid gwendy dolls which is like this movie's version of barbie and she gets really embarrassed and is like shut up so i kind of like the idea that she's very when when she has the scene where she's like oh i know i'm not like the other girls she knows what she's doing she's not just like she's aware that guys like girls to behave a certain way and don't like them to behave other ways so she's kind of leaning into some aspects of her personality at the expense of others specifically because of that so there's a little bit more awareness that like the movie's not just reproducing a type it knows it's a type and the character knows it's a type and is choosing to play into it um does that really work perfectly no because apart from the stray line it like barely matters and there's no sort of like moment of realizing no i am also like i like girly stuff and that's okay and i don't have to be made to feel bad about that so this defense is rather flimsy and doesn't really fit (laughs) but i don't know i'm willing to give joe dante a lot of credit because wow this movie held up better than i remembered so small soldiers is really good but i did audibly wince and cringe when she's when alan said you're not like the other girls because my god yeah (laughs) Yeah, that's almost a a bit of akin to like mine, right? Like the idea of having to spell something out that clearly. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I feel like this was a trope for a lot of like 80s and 90s growing up movies, right? Like there was always the one tomboy girl that would join the group and that was it. And then, Mm -hmm. of course, they have to go out of their way to to show that she's different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and in the case of this, it very much, and I, I know I said I wasn't going to get into too much of like problematic stuff, and I guess I kind of do for at least th- this and one other pick, but there is also that idea of like appealing to what a, like a, a straight guy would want for like, they have to be hot in a conventional girly girl way, but also they can't be girly because that's like annoying and cringe. So they have to be hot, but also they listen to like rock music. Now, what I find funny is like, you can tell it's made by old men because their version of like a cool girl is like, I listen to Led Zeppelin. It's like, it's 1998. Like <laughs> I, Zeppelin haven't made an album in decades. And like, not doing me wrong. I still think Zeppelin are cool, but you know, in a way it kind of makes the film age better because if she said like, Hey, do you like Limp Biscuit or something? It would probably sound way worse, but uh, it does stand out in terms of like, yeah, you can tell this is written by like guys in their forties. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah but then again maybe boys are just that shallow i don't know maybe. <laughs> it's been a while since i've been that age maybe yeah um and i i, I it, it's reflective of how the screenplay is like for all the fun elements that are there the scaffolding that holds it in place is very stock and pretty flimsy and to a certain extent i'm fine with that because at the end of the day like that is just scaffolding really it's not really what the movie's about you just need some way to structure it and if it means i get a movie where uh, the climax is a toy Tommy Lee Jones fighting a toy Franklin Jella on top of an electrical <laughs> tower with a plastic knife. I mean, I can't, I can't complain too much. Oh, so. that's pretty wild. I do remember seeing like commercials for this one, like crazy, but I feel like it just kind of went away. And yeah, then... it, it it's it was not successful. It got middling uh, box office, pretty middling reviews. Siskel and Ebert didn't like it. Ebert was very much like, I think this will scare young children. It's like, Raj, come on, man. Um, (laughs) Maybe, but it's awesome. So it's fine. And honestly, like watching it though, it's like, 
I really feel like if you're an adult watching this in 98, you should be able to pick out that it's a much more clever film than just being an action movie where toys kill each other. Um, and I think also the effects hold up pretty well for the most part. There's a mix of CG and like practical toys and some of the shots stand out when they're using one or the other, but I don't think any of it looks bad. Um, and it also has, I think one of the Phil Hartman's best lines where uh, he's got his big surround sound TV set up and they're watching some war movie and it's just in the background of the scene and you just hear him go, I think World War II was my favorite war. <laughs> Which is funny and really ties in with the film's themes of how, again, war gets repackaged as, like, entertainment to be consumed uncritically. So it's that a smart movie. That definitely seems like a Phil Hartman line. Yeah, he, he nails it. <laughs> He's really funny in it. Is he, like, um, the dad or what? He is the next-door neighbor's dad. He's Kirsten Dunst's okay. dad. Oh, okay, uh, gotcha. And then the, the main kid's dad is played by, I think the actor's name is Kevin Dunn. He was the dad in the Transformers movies. Um, mm, yeah. But he's he's fun in it too. Like it's a it's a fun uh, cast. Um, of course, it's a Joe Dante film, so Dick Miller is in it briefly as like the truck driver who delivers the toys, and he's really good in it. I don't know. Like it's even removing the sort of wow, this movie's much smarter and more thoughtful than I would have ever thought. It's still also just like it's a fun movie, and it's rare that you watch a movie that you haven't seen in decades from your childhood and go, oh yeah, this is actually still good. You is know? this kind of like one of his? joe dante's last like notable films because probably i think five years uh, after this he does looney tunes back in action which i'll defend it's got one brilliant sequence where they they're in the louvre that seems amazing and they're jumping have you seen looney tunes back in action <laughs> no why okay. would i no it's it's actually good <laughs> parts of it not all of it parts of it are not good but it's a better Looney Tunes movie than Space Jam. It gets the characters much better than that movie did. There's a scene where Elmer Fudd is chasing Daffy and Bugs Bunny in the Louvre and they're actually jumping into famous paintings. Um, and it's delightful and really funny. Hmm. Um, okay. Yeah, this this probably would have been like his, one of his last sort of like big movies. And I think Looney Tunes back in action was he's like, cause I think he, that was like a horrible production and he hated dealing with the Warner Brothers suits. And he was like, I'm done. Yeah, so. makes sense. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you, you are selling me on it. I'll probably check it out. Yes, I think it's on it, Prime right now. For no other reason for the uh, Spinal Tap voices. <laughs> and like, I, I didn't even realize until we were watching, like, wait, it's like Michael McKean, Harry Shearer, Christopher Guest. And I was like, why? <laughs> I get the Dirty Dozen casting. That makes sense. Um. Yeah, I don't know. It's a fun, it's a fun film. And I actually will say quickly, like, in terms of also things we don't like in movies, we, we do the final line is like, straight up a Titanic reference. It's like, oh, really? Yeah, it's like, man, do we have to end this on like a, a 90s pop culture joke? Hmm. Titanic has endured in the culture. So it's not as egregious, but I'm still. Um, yeah, no, I like it. Nice. I'll add it to my collection, I think, which I was not expecting when I when I threw it on. <laughs> there so. you go. Sweet. Okay. Well, uh, I'm gonna go with a pick from what I know is one of our both of our one of our favorite uh superhero movies, which is Spider-Man 2. Um, which is fantastic, and it's probably as close to perfect as a superhero movie is going to get. 
Um, but there is a moment I don't like, and that is when we see the green goblin tease at the end. So when kind of the main storyline of Dr. Octopus has wrapped up and James Franco's um, Harry, right? It's Harry Osborne. Mm-hmm. He's kind of, uh, I mean, he's he's a pretty big character through, well, all three movies, but he is a big character through this movie, mostly in how angsty he is against Spider-Man. And at the end, we get a tease where he starts hearing his father's voice and then finds his father's like secret lab with all the Green Goblin stuff. Um, and the scene is entirely there only to set up a sequel. And I just, it's just one of those things that always bugs me because I think as a total package, Spider-Man 2, it, you could almost like, I mean, I know it's two, but you could take that and it would be just a perfect um, little great story about the superhero and it could exist entirely on its own. I mean, obviously knowing the first movie adds a lot to the fabric of this one. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but, and maybe it's, maybe it would be better if Spider-Man three actually turned out to be a much better film than it was. Maybe the fact that that's not that great of a film uh, makes this moment a little worse, but I just don't, I just don't like these obvious sequel setups. And I know that there's, that's just the way of life now. Like <laughs> that's just what happens here. But when you've got a movie that's such at working at such a high level, something like this, that's very product based and very, uh, you know, studio thinking really stands out to me. And I, I just wish it wasn't there. Well, I like the scene. Um, but I do agree with you that it stands out because everything else in this film is so self-contained. Even like the first movie, you get the recap in the opening credits of like essentially what happens in that movie. So even if you haven't seen Spider-Man one, you can fill in the blank. Um, but yeah, this does stand out as like the one moment that like is primarily existing just to pay off uh, in another film. And you also, and you could argue it's unnecessary because you could have started Spider-Man three with this scene. Yeah. And then I that's what, uh, you know, so you leave, you be, you start, I can, you can imagine alternate version of Spider-Man three that opens right with Harry Osborne in the aftermath of, you know, the fight. And um, yeah, I don't know. Like I, I, this is a film too that like I have, I first saw when I was like really young. So it's kind of hard to, in some ways to really separate myself from it and imagine how it could be different. Um, but I've kind of just always accepted that's the way this movie is and I don't mind it. Um, but I see the argument against it. Um, and I do agree with you that like had Spider-Man 3 turned out, it probably would have been different because in a way now it's like a reminder that like, oh yeah, things kind of end on a, yeah. lukewarm note i don't hate spider-man 3 but it's it it does not tie things together perfectly i wanted to ask you though because you're saying like you know not crazy about these sequel setups would you feel the same way about the joker card at the end of batman begins that's actually you know what i was thinking of that no i wouldn't i feel like the joker card at the end of batman begins works even if no other movie had been made mm-hmm. like i think that's a good nod to i mean it does take in some prior knowledge of Batman and knowing that his big enemy is the Joker. Um, I think if Batman Begins was the only film made, that scene still works because it's kind of like a hint of what his possible future is going to be mm. without necessarily being like, 
this is something that is absolutely going to have to we, like it's not it doesn't feel as like much of a loose thread whereas this one is okay well obviously harry has to do something with what he's been given at this point and it it doesn't feel like just kind of like a nod mm-hmm. necessarily to what's going to happen it's like a this is what's going to happen and you are going to see this i don't know yeah i think that's fair and i also think the fact that it's directly tied to like a character that's established in these movies leaves it more as a a dangling thread that if there was not a spider-man 3 would be more egregious you know Mm -hmm. uh than if there wasn't a dark knight to batman begins um i will say though like as far as sequel teases go i do like the scene in part because i mean defoe you gotta love defoe and honestly (laughs) the way he's revealed is kind of hilarious it's just like son the camera pans over like i'm here (laughs) oh it's great um and i like the dialogue that harry and his and and norman have in there of like you know not really norman it's this hallucination but you know and it also i will say it is interesting though because in in spider-man one it very much implies that like it's the chemicals that make norman off his rocker but then harry hasn't been exposed to it and you could argue like that's a plot hole because da 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 but i kind of like the idea more that like no 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 like it's more there's something in like these characters personalities and mm-hmm. that it was norman too which got awakened by the um which i guess also ties into why i so dislike spider-man no way home where it's like you can just cure the bad guys of their of their villain just give them the magic needle <laughs> Goddamn movie but uh yeah i don't know i, I don't dislike the scene um, but I get it, and I, it does feel it does stand out in in light of the rest of the movie. And it's also like as far as sequel teases, even though it's the most overt one, it's less interesting than the actual final shot of Spider-Man Two of just Mary Jane realizing the choice yeah. she's made and kind of stewing in that disappointment for a bit. Yeah, that's a brilliant last shot. That I would say is more akin to the the Joker card a little bit, right? Like mm-hmm. it's a, you know, this is even if you don't ever watch another movie, this is, you got an idea of where these characters are going to be at. Yeah. And that's a, and I will say like the parts of Spider-Man three, it gets muddled because that movie has so much going on, but like the basic idea of like, okay, let's examine what it actually means to be in a relationship where you both have different responsibilities and you sometimes need to prioritize one versus the other. And the conflicts that come from that is really rich and then it gets muddled because they have like 40 different subplots so they can't let that yeah evolve naturally you need to have like external things to push it along but i love that idea so yeah yeah, yeah so that's my moment i i even think that harry himself i think his arc ends in an okay place in number 2 like i mm-hmm. like the fact that he actually confronts the fact like confronts spider-man finds out it's peter mm-hmm. and then just loses himself yeah, that one's a, it's a, it is a bit of a loose thread because he's really reacting reacting to shock, but it does feel like his story has come to some sort of a conclusion, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, an yeah, open ended I mean, one, but yeah, yeah, it's open ended, but it's it's it feels more like okay, we like again like the Mary Jane shot, like we can start to speculate where this is going to go versus mm-hmm. straight up being told new goblins coming, and it also led to problems with Spider Man Three, where like. Sam Raimi wants to do Sandman as the villain, but they've set up the Green Goblin, so they have to do him. And then Avi Arad is like, Venom is the most popular villain we haven't done. We have to put Venom in this movie. So that's why you get that being just like, again, a stew of different stuff. If they'd left the Goblin teaser out, they could have done something different with Harry. Um, Yeah, that's true. 
I know one popular interpretation is like make Harry Venom because he already has mm. the motivation and like just just have the symbiote atta- attached to him instead of like trying to set up Eddie Brock in one movie who just seems like he's just <laughs> the thing about Eddie is like he in the comics usually and I don't want to get too deep into this but like he has sympathetic reasons for hating Peter and Spider-Man but in the movie it's like you lied <laughs> Yeah, and tried to slander someone and you got called out and you lost your job like that's on you <laughs> yeah i don't really feel like you were a victim of an injustice yeah um, whereas harry harry's uh beef with peter makes sense and it's something that's mm-hmm. been built up so yeah, yeah and it's more dramatically resonant of like i he thinks you that uh peter killed his father versus i lost my job at the daily bugle that i had for like a week but don't really don't worry that butler will come along and tell yeah. him what's what <laughs> i will say the uh i know you're not a fan <clears throat> of like necessarily alternate cuts but the spider-man 3 editors cut cuts out the butler does it yeah peter oh, makes wow. a spiel and harry basically tells him to go away and then harry like just looks over at a photo of him peter and mj from like the good old days era and then he huh. comes over and helps which is way better than just like this random old man <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah You've been like an extra in the other movies. <laughs> oh, oh, Spider-Man 3. Yeah, it's a mess. Yeah, but there is great things in that mess too. Like, it's not a completely worthless movie. No, it's not. I'm I'm with you on that one. It's it's not... Uh, uh, I think we bashed on the Andrew Garfield ones enough, but... Uh, never enough for me. The, uh, they don't reach even Spider-Man 3 levels, so... No, they do not. Um, all right, well, I'll jump into a... A very different film, abruptly shifting gears. John Ford's The Searchers. Um, and I'm sort of talking about two different little moments that amount to like a larger deal with The Searchers, which is basically in some the film's comedic relief segments. Um, because The Searchers, it, it's a brilliant Western. It's probably John Wayne's greatest performance. It's beautiful looking. The action scenes are exciting. And as a Hollywood entertaining Western, it's rousing. But it's also a really dark and compelling look at the dark history of racism that America is built on and the and, and the sort of ideology of like this racist and what it does to him and the Ethan Edwards character. And um, it's, it's a film that I think somewhat, it was often given a bad look by people who see it without context and just think, oh, it's just a corny old racist Western and it's being ignorant in its racism. And it's like, no, 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 it's, it's, it's about those things and it's foregrounding them. And you can tell because if you watch other Westerns, not all Westerns, but other Westerns from classic Hollywood period that will often depict uh, the sort of uh, indigenous peoples as just like, or the Indian characters as just being the bad guy. And there's nothing else beyond that this one is actually a lot more interested in um the the hatred of the protagonist and how it just destroys them but it also is this hollywood entertainment and that's why it's speculated that the film has these comedic relief interludes and there's two big ones that stand out one is where our heroes um deal with the native tribe and there's a sort of comedic mishap where the younger character who uh, played the original Captain Pike on the Star Trek pilot, uh, fun fact, he is accidentally married to this overweight Indian woman named Look, and she doesn't understand English, and oh, isn't it funny, and they kick her down the hill and laugh at her, he, 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 and it's pretty bad. And the other subplot more involves his 
uh, sweetheart back home on the ranch who is being courted basically by this sort of goofy yuckster playing guitar. And there's a lot of comedy that comes from both those subplots. And I think it's in Ebert's review for his great movie series where he talks about patient viewers wait these scenes out for the film to get back to, you know, the real story. But the more I watch the film, the more I'm like, well, I can't just wait through these scenes. They're here. I, you know, make sense of them. And I've started to see value in them in ways that I don't know if are necessarily intentional. But the more John Ford films I watch, the more I think, no, I, I do think these actually are intentional. And even if they aren't, I think they actually serve the film rather well, even if they're jarring on a first time viewing. So one, the look scene is interesting because they mock and ridicule her and it's played as comedic relief. And I think it is expected that the audience will laugh. And then later in the film, Ethan Edwards, who's John Wayne and uh, his, uh, the younger character, Martin, I think is his name, they find her corpse. And what I, and it's this really harrowing, yeah. solemn moment of them dealing with that loss. And that's a, there's no, there's no humor in it. There's no, and it's not even like a minor note. It's really played with a lot of like horror to an extent. And I think to me, it, it's a way of making the audience complicit. Like it's expected you're going to laugh at this woman. And now you are, you know, you feel almost a sense of guilt because you were, perpetuating those same things and the other reason that stands out is because so you have the whole comedic subplots of like martin's girl back home and she's going to marry this other goofy guitar playing guy and then martin comes back and there's a big fight and oh he 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 lots of jokes but then when his sweetheart who is vera miles finds out that you know they're they're going to find uh debbie who's ethan's niece who has been living with uh comanche in, in the plains and that she's basically one of them, she spouts the exact same hideous racism as Ethan and is basically like, you know, sees her, sees Debbie as less than human now. She's she's a foreigner. She should be destroyed. She's, you know, this and that. And I love the way that it, the film almost creates this like comfort of safety of like, you've got the dark, dangerous unknown and the mystery and the adventure the characters are going on traveling further into darkness. And you've got the the homestead where things are lighter and comedy happens. And then when you go back to that homestead where things are supposed to be light and fluffy, you get this shocking expression of vile racism and hatred. And I think it actually is really deliberate, especially because there are other Ford films where he will set up characters who are often will be like older women, for example, who seem like they're going to be like innocent and like comedic relief, but then they will have these moments of just slipping horrible racist ideology and it's like oh no this is more of a commentary on like the ways in which um the the sort of supposed uh good naturedness of the home is actually bound and underlied by this really insidious and horrible belief structure and so in hindsight even though the first couple times i saw the searchers when these comic comedic beats were occurring i was just like oh can we get back to the dark story of racism and self-destruction and america and realizing, oh, no, 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 these things are, like, attached. So, long way, I guess I kind of like this moment after all. But I was going to say, when you said you were going to try to defend your moments, you were not joking. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, trying to make Pretty sense Pretty much brought her stuff. back around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. So, so I, would th- I would suspect then that you feel that, um, because you were kind of implying at the beginning that it might have been, like, more of a studio note to put in comedic mm-hmm. comedic beats but it almost sounds like you're maybe thinking that 
they were more purposeful by Ford at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little column A and column B. I think Ford at this point had been working in the Hollywood system for decades. And he also is someone who, and I, you could argue how sincere he was, but when he would talk in interviews, he didn't seem to put a lot of stock in himself as like an artist. Now, he also could have been modest. He could have been, that could have just been his personality. But I think he was very much aware of like the, of being the, the requirements of commercial filmmaking. So I think it's less like, well, I have to put this in so much as like, well, I I have to put this in. Let's think critically about how I'm going to use it. Yeah, that's Um, fair. So anyway, and I'm not sure, like, I can't say for sure, obviously, if like it really was intentional, but it does stand out and more and more so that on rewatches of like how stark and sudden you get this plunge, especially when Vera Miles just unloads racism and it catches you totally off guard. And now, again, I'm sure that people will argue like, well, that's not critical. That's just the film being an old racist movie. But I would disagree because Martin, who's Rex Hunter, I think is the name of the actor, or Tab Hunter uh, or something like that. I think it's, is it Jeffrey Hunter? Jeffrey Hunter, yeah. Jeffrey yeah. Hunter, yeah. Um, he is the moral compass in the film. Ethan's the protagonist, but he, it, like, to, to use a modern comparison, if John Wayne is Walt, then uh, Jeffrey Hunter is Jesse. Gotcha. In terms of like the moral compass of the story. So I really do think we're meant to um, relate to that perspective of seeing this racist views as like hideous and grotesque and, and horrible. Um, and it does come kind of from out of nowhere, but it makes you rethink so much of the comedic subplots and realize, oh, this sort of safe, lighthearted comfort um, isn't actually so safe after all. And I think, yeah, like if you you know, thinking about the sort of veneer and presentation of white America as like really wholesome and good, clean American values, which come in and out of Ford's movies, but often with a more critical eye and realizing like those values, like, and the the racism too is expressed not even as like a dark secret, but just as like this dark thing that we just weren't aware of before being felt by these characters, but it can coexist. Right. That you have the light, fluffy romance and the tee who's going to marry Vera Miles, Miles and also Vera Miles is a racist. And they don't, like, there's no conflict between those two things at all. Um, and I, I don't know, I think about, like, not to get too deep into this, but hanging out with, like, older relatives or older friends, and it's all pleasant, and then they say something, like, hideously racist, and you're just kind of like, what? You don't really, and it's, like, really uncomfortable, but they don't, they're totally oblivious to that being, like, bad i think there's there's a very similar uh commentary going on here yeah that's fair it's been a while since i've seen the searchers um but i do remember yeah i do remember as well not really liking that uh fall down the hill moment for sure yeah um no which i will say as much as i've intellectually defended it as a gag it's just not funny and that's that's a bigger sin yeah and it comes off as like desperately trying to be mm-hmm. funny and not mm-hmm. and those are kind of yeah and, and it's definitely <laughs> those are not good I've, moments i've been in the intro to film class when they've screened this and undergrads don't know how to take it when it's like what is like it's because it's so clean like clearly racist and it's and it's uh execution um that it does stand out and i i do think it's I do think it's deliberate or maybe not deliberate, but I do think it's effective in making the audience complicit in what happens to her. That That's a good argument. I, I like, I like that idea. And I do, 
I do think there's good merit in that, especially with the with the scene later. Yeah, I think you're on to something there. Yeah. So is Ethan <laughs> this is gonna sound really lame and navel gazy, but is Ethan America? Like is that the idea here? Um uh, yeah, or I don't are these characters. I don't know if America? Ethan's America per se. Maybe he's America's past. You know, you think about the final scene of like the whole point of him, you know, not being able to join the family. Yeah. Um, and some have argued it's very tragic that the work of men like Ethan is what allows the family to exist and yet he can't be a part of it. But then I also, and that is also an element I think is interesting is you could look at that ending as like kind of a hopeful one in a way, like, well, it's good that he can't be part of the family because he shouldn't be. But the earlier scene implicates like, no, 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 even if he's not there, that racism still is yeah so yeah i wouldn't say ethan is america writ large but i might say the homestead is yeah possibly that makes sense especially with what you're saying about the you know the lightheartedness with something underneath it that just comes out every now and then definitely Mm. i would the the thing that's interesting to me is i i feel like for john ford it's very deliberate i think he knows what he's doing but i would be very interested to hear john wayne talk about the the character because like it's i think it's easily his best performance no question um but he was like where john ford is like this really interesting and complex political figure um john wayne is just like you know uncomplicated republican i support america i support vietnam i support white people at the expense of other races like he there's none of that complexity that ford demonstrates in wayne's real real i shouldn't say none i don't i'm not the man's biographer but certainly in some of the other films he makes like the green berets in 1968 a film that treats vietnam like world war ii in the 40s and is not great um so it'd be interesting to hear like i think about that like that story about in ben-hur where the writer and the other actor who's playing uh who's the villain in ben-hur i remember his name uh, hugh griffith okay where the, the hugh griffith masala and the writer, are you talking about yeah masala yeah. yeah where they're very aware of like the homosexual undercurrents between the characters and like it's not a friend's betrayed it's a lover's jilted and that's what really makes it make sense and like charlton heston not being aware of that subtext and i want to say when he was asked about it he was very dismissive of it like that's not what the goddamn movie's about um and i wonder if there's something similar with wayne where if you'd point out like so that character's a racist but like not at all pilgrim he's a good american <laughs> like you know you wonder because on yeah. screen it's so like it's so cutting um but i don't know how much of that is just you know ford and the context of the film angling it in a way that wayne maybe didn't even fully uh comprehend or well, he maybe just need saw the character as like obsessive maybe you need to get on the set of his next uh vacuum cleaner commercial or whatever whatever was that they brought him back for and ask him i yeah that's there you go (laughs) so oh boy no good pick thank you very much uh mine's not as um poignant i guess (laughs) that's okay i think we can get into geek debates which are just as intense mine is more nerd rage so (laughs) yeah so i'm going to talk about uh lord of the rings the return of the king which is timely because this new Lord of the Rings series is coming out shortly. Yeah, it's pretty soon, eh? Listen to this. Yeah. Are you gonna watch um, it? I'm gonna watch it. I don't I have no I don't know what's gonna happen with it. Like I 
I don't know. Well, I'll just watch it. We'll see what it is. Um, but anyway, Return of the King. So this is, of course, the third of the trilogy. And the moment I'm going to talk about is, I would say out of, from Justin's question, this is probably the one that fits the most for me. Because it it is more of a concept than a moment. But I get, there is actually like a shot that particularly bugs me. So I think that'll work. But it is, of course, the ghost army at the at the end of the battle um spoiler alert <laughs> but <laughs> i don't think it's a problem with something like lord of the rings i think it's fine. um yeah if you're so listening the, to this show and you haven't seen lord of the rings i'm shocked yes <laughs> and so of course um aragorn's deal at the at the last ba- battle the battle of pelinor fields the last complete battle i guess i should say is he he went to go gather the ghost army and they're bound to him as the king and so because they betrayed him like betrayed the king thousands of years ago and so uh, their souls have never been at rest that's the whole deal here and so he actually gathers the army and he says i will release you um from your oath but you have to come and help us fight the problem is that the ghost army is just just like plows over everything right (laughs) there um and there's one like i said there's one shot in particular that really bugs me because it kind of showcases that i would say leading up to that the ghosts are just kind of there fighting but there's a particular shot where you actually see them like swarm over one of the elephants and then like just and then just like basically just cruise through the city and you see this overshot of Minas Tirith, the city, and you just see the green ghosts, this green line just go through the city, just like nothing. Um, that shot in particular bugs me because it kind of, I don't know if, if a, it robs the villains of their, the bad, the bad side of their power a little bit. Cause they're so easily overtaken here. I mean, they are, I mean, it's just an orc army. They are basically fodder. Uh, for the most part but they still are they still should be seen as a threatening force because there's still some of this movie to go and we still need to see um sauron's army as threatening and menacing uh but you kind of kill that (laughs) a little bit because the ghosts are so powerful they're they're like the definition of a deus ex machina right where they just come in and do exactly what you need to so that the uh the heroes can win the day um they i don't say they come completely out of nowhere because of course there is some buildup but when they do get there it's like well that's it it's over now like it's immediately over yeah 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 it's a fair critique um it it kind of bugs me too and it's especially it's it's also indicative of i think a larger problem that the trilogy has of like becoming bigger and bigger action movies where the books really as and again i haven't read i've only read like maybe a quarter of fellowship but as i understand it the books aren't really like action novels um they have battles but they're not but the movies are functionally in some ways action films and they start to get bigger and bigger and in some ways even more than the uh the ghost army what really bugs me is spider-man legolas who in the first (laughs) film is just a good archer and like the third film is like doing like ridiculous stuff which then gets even worse in the hobbit films which at that point at that point super mario (laughs) jumping on the blocks yeah thankfully at that point it's no longer a moment i don't like in a movie i love it's just another crappy thing in these horrible (laughs) films um yeah there's like this 
they do i do think the filmmakers err at points in the the spectacle of the action to the point of losing the the actual tension and it's why going back to the trilogy i still i think one of my favorite action scenes in the whole series is the climax of fellowship because it's just like a skirmish in the woods yeah it's so simple um but the stakes are really clear and it's really exciting uh, and the urukai are built up as these scary horrible force um yeah i think it's a fair critique i will say it used to bug me when i was younger that like uh oh why don't they just use the the ghost army against like sauron himself because like clearly they're indestructible but that bothers me a lot less because it's like no the whole point is that aragorn is a worthy king and he doesn't yeah. abuse them he lets them go so but i say that the moment does fail and that it very clearly puts that into people's minds right it really because you know almost everybody in the audience at that point is thinking that like yeah, they're keep like the army uh, <laughs> yeah yeah um, I think Gimli even makes a note of it. He's like, oh, we should probably keep these guys around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he does. He does say that. That's right. Um, yeah, that that I'm okay with. But yeah, the, the, the way that it deflates the tension, and I guess you could argue it's kind of earned at this point because we've had a lot of like despair. How are we going to get through this? So the relief of victory, maybe it's, you know, we get enough of a low that that, that peak uh, justifies itself. But that's fair it's just it's more in the way that um they how all-encompassing that victory yeah. is and mm -hmm. it's i think it should have been toned down a little bit yeah right? it's like it's fair don't make these guys too powerful but have them very clearly now they're here okay yeah they're gonna win the battle now you can tell that but but it's not like it's like a that scene in the fourth Indiana Jones movie where people just get the ants just like right yeah yeah <laughs> yeah encapsulate people that's kind of what they're like they're like ants which is weird mm -hmm. it just feels weird and I I kind of want it makes me wonder and this would probably be cleared up by just looking at the behind the scenes on the the DVDs and Blu-rays again but um you know we're now in this phase where like action scenes are largely dictated by storyboard artists that they come up with a bunch of bits and then the director just assembles them into an order and one does wonder, because this is kind of the turning point of the CG heavy battle sequence, um, how much of the action scenes, because the sheer volume of production was storyboard artists coming up with bits yeah, and how hands-on was Jackson and setting that up. Now, the production Lord of the Rings seemed very well organized and clearly despite their massive scale, you really feel like a personal touch in the filmmaking. Um, so maybe not, I might be completely full of it. Um, but the way it plays visually, it definitely feels like a precursor to like in an Avengers movie, say, where you've got X amount of like fun visual gags, but they're all kind of in their own little silo. They don't really connect to tell a story. Um, and on the flip side, even if it wasn't that scenario, it does also feel like, you know, the excitement of, oh, the spectacle we can do with computer animation and setting up our action scenes. Um, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a fair critique for sure. I will say though, now that you're mentioning that the idea of like building a story, the reveal of them is awesome. Like when the boat pulls up and then there are three heroes jump out of the boat and you're like, well, there's just three of them. And then the ghosts show up. That's pretty cool. Like that. Yeah. They did that really well. That's a good point. It's the ant effect. I don't it's, like. <laughs> that's fair. It's basically just that. Just get rid of that one shot. Yeah. And then the movie's perfect again. Um, yeah. Now I will say though, I used to have, 
like in my old at one point my rings rankings were like five stars five stars four and a half stars and then the last time i rewatched return of the king i'm like no they're all five like there are little things return of the king yeah. i think more than the other two even there's like little things in it that i'm like uh, and i don't love that but the sheer overwhelming success of them i think kind of eclipses everything else i think yeah, i made the I case agree. before that i think they're the best blockbusters ever made better than any of the star wars any of the batman nolan batman films the only thing that would maybe stop that is like raiders of the lost ark but even that doesn't really feel like a blockbuster in the same way to me mm, yeah um I see what you mean it's uh, yeah i mean that's that's a solid uh solid pick i would say because you've got all three of them and i agree with you they're all fives like this doesn't prevent me from giving it a five out of five mostly because so much of the rest of it is so damn good mm-hmm. like the mount doom sequence is just amazing like it's what the movie is building up to and they did not disappoint though it is yep. so good it's kind of like psycho when they people talk about how lame it is that the psychologist just spells everything out at the end and it's like yeah but the movie's already won like it don't matter <laughs> You know, and actually, like, even though it's a film I'm more mixed on, but it's kind of how I felt rewatching Saving Private Ryan, which is a film that for anyone who's read my letterbox review, I have complicated feelings about. But the opening sequence is so spectacular that it's like the movie can't be bad no matter what happens after. Like, it's kind of one already. Um, Pretty much. So, you know, yeah. Good choice. Um, okay, well, I'll, I'll close it out with a new film, and the one that I probably have the weakest defense for in terms of rationalizing it. Maybe, maybe it's not as weak as my soul, small soldiers rational, rationalization. We'll see. <laughs> so uh, I'm talking about Mank, David Fincher, uh, story of the writer behind Citizen Kane, and I was very. I loved this movie when it came out. I think in part it definitely helped that. Uh, it was the pandemic year where like nothing was coming out. And it was like at the time, like the first movie I'd seen in months that was, you know, better than just being pretty good and had the aspirations of like a big prestige, like great movie. And that kind of let me really ride the high of it. And it also is inherently about things I really like, which is not only the making of Citizen Kane, but specifically the intersections of Hollywood and politics. That's neat. Um, But of course, there's the ending of the film. So spoilers, I guess. Uh, They write Citizen Kane, but the film ends basically as Herman Mankiewicz has finished his draft of the screenplay and Orson is then coming onto the project. And then, you know, movie ends and we get the sort of epilogue of like, you know, the text that explains what happens. And they show Herman Mankiewicz receiving Citizen Kane wins best screenplay at the Oscars. And then we see Herman receiving the award at his own home and making the speech, which he did make in real life of saying, uh, I would like to accept this award in the uh, uh, spirit that the script was written, which is to say in the absence of Orson Welles, implying that Welles didn't really do any of the writing. And certainly the film has only chronicled Manx's work on the screenplay and not Orson's, even though it does leave with Orson taking over the project and he does say the script needs work so it is technically honoring the recorded fact of Mankiewicz writes a draft 
um, based on the notes he and Wells had put together. Wells takes over and restructures and throws stuff out and adds new things. Um, but the way it ends, it does end in a way that leaves the impression of, oh, I guess Herman Mankiewicz wrote Citizen Kane and Wells to call the credit. And this does annoy me a lot, uh, in part because it's relitigating an old battle that should never have been made in the first place, which was when Pauline Kael in the 1970s publishes her essay, Raising Kane, which was asserting that Orson, which was part of her larger, I don't like auteur theory. So I'm going to take down the, the biggest auteur of all and puts forth that Citizen Kane is a great movie, but everything that makes it special is not Orson Welles. He was a talented amateur and basically makes the case like Greg Toland's cinematography makes the film and Herman Mankiewicz's screenwriting makes the film and then goes further to make the point that Mank actually did all the script work and Welles didn't. This has been pretty roundly disproven and the essay is discredited at this point. Um, you know, notes from Wells himself, Wells' secretary at the time, other people who worked on the production of the film, other historians, the actual notes from the time. But nonetheless, Pauline Kael at the time, hugely influential film critic, massive platform, um, is able to get this essay through and it does um, alter the perception of Wells. And especially at this point, it's easy to have the perception of Wells altered. I think the work he does in the 60s and 70s is still remarkable. Movies like Chimes at Midnight and uh, After Fake, but you know, at this point, his career has clearly not lived up to the um, rapturous expectations of the great Hollywood boy wonder. You know, Kane is an amazing achievement. And then after that, every subsequent production is dogged by studio interference and recuts and lost footage and all sorts of, he never gets to make a un, sort of unvarnished masterpiece ever again. And, you know, at this point, he's beginning to do like he's very overweight, he's doing wine commercials, he's being in all these horrible films just to get funding to make the stuff he wants to do. So it's very easy for a general audience to buy into, yeah, I guess Orson Welles wasn't that special. And it does bother me a little bit that as much as I love Mank, the way the movie ends, it does kind of leave by re-implicating that same idea. And I know Fincher has talked about Kale in relation to um, Mank and Citizen Kane. So yeah, it bugs me. Um, in terms of rationalizing it, again, I do think it's it's an implication, and there's also some implication against it because you have, you know, it does end with Wells taking over the project and Wells saying it needs work, and it did. Uh, and I also think, frankly, it's Mank's story, so it shouldn't necessarily devote a big section to Wells' writing, just so you know what really happened. Um, and I also think, in some ways, it's the more dramatically interesting ending because. To me, the whole crux of the film is less about the making of Citizen Kane and more about Mank grappling with these questions of responsibility in what messages he's putting out into the world and the effect they're having. So in some ways, this ending is consistent with all of that. But yeah, as a Wells fan, it does bother me the way that it potentially uh, misleads people in what happened. So, so that's something yeah. I don't love about Mank. That's fair. I actually, this actually bugs me too. I I don't think I'm quite on the man, man bad bandwagon like you are. Um, but this moment does bug me for a different reason. My reason is a little bit more diegetic to the film itself. Mm. Cause I, I feel like putting that out there, like that idea of in the absence of Wells, it makes it seem like the conflict of the story was him and Wells, right? When that, that becomes such an important uh, pinpoint at the end of the movie, but it isn't. 
like his conflict is with Hearst and um, mm-hmm. Davies, Marion Davies. Yeah. Yeah. Like his, his conflict is between those two. And that's what the entire movie pretty much has been up to that point. Orson Welles comes in here and there. Like a, he only had one scene. It's like they kind of tacked on the Wells mank conflict at the end when that's not the focus of the movie. And mm-hmm. I think this accentuates that. And so, yeah, I think, I think that's fair. That's a problem. It has ending troubles. And I will say, I like the fight scene they have. I know people made fun of this gag is trite, but I really like when they're fighting and makes like, this is what the third act needs, you know, a sort of explosion of conflict. And Wells just goes, maybe I love that. <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of cheesy and like a little bit, I don't know a little bit overdone but i don't something about it i find really amusing. i like the idea of two creatives being in a fight and yet still prioritizing the project um that seems true to me but yeah i i think that's a very good read that like it does feel like a weird detour like the whole movie was about you know weighing the the authorship of kane and it's not yeah. um yeah i'm not sure necessarily what would have been a better ending um but you know the ending that's there and i also wonder too because like it's 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 based on a earlier version of the script that david fincher's father had written if that was just how his dad ended the script he's like well if this is how my dad ended it my dad's gone now i need to honor that and if so it's possible fair enough i get that um but yeah the ending is an issue it feels abrupt and it feels it it divergent from what the film was doing and potentially misleading as to what really happened and uh it also is something that i'm almost more annoyed by too by virtue of like just constantly the sort of um straw man critiques that get thrown out about auteur theory all the time that are like misinformed and this is inherently related to that because it's related to you know kale's uh takedowns of auteur theory which were similarly uh i think misguided and underdeveloped so that's fair yeah maybe in a few years to tie it back to your first pick of the uh of the podcast this week uh maybe in a few years someone will do a joe dante movie and they'll end it with in the absence of steven spielberg (laughs) (laughs) yeah maybe man that'd be great actually (laughs) dante the movie yeah so yeah. Yeah. No. Good. That's a good pick. I I abs- I agree with you on that one for sure. And the sad thing is too is because I feel like I'm one of the bigger Mank stands on the internet. I really liked it. Um, but yeah, it wasn't well loved. No. There's no doubt about that. Which is not but surprising because it's, getting... it's it's people seem there's an expectation like well people love movies about movies. It's like they love them when they're like rosy and nice. And Mank's not really that. Yeah. Um, but it's also not really like an expose either. Um. I, again, I think it's most interesting is just this movie about like the political intersections of Hollywood and uh, and, and politics and business. I think that's all really interesting. Um, I love that line that, uh, you know, Mank has about, you know, to, I don't remember who, it's just to a studio head, I don't remember who, but he's saying, you know, you can convince the public that King Kong is 40 feet tall and Mary Pickford is still a virgin at 40, but you can't convince california voters that a turncoat socialist is a menace to everything they hold dear you're not even trying and then that ends up being and that is like that's the most interesting thing like he says that in part to be clever because it is a clever line and then it caught it has horrible ramifications where upton sinclair you know costs him the election and he probably would have been 
a better choice and would have actually made life in in the city better um so but if it, it does feel like the movie it, it's about citizen kane so it has to be about kane in its final moments even though it's not really right so yeah and correct me if i'm wrong is this getting a criterion it's been rumored for a long time in part because the, oh, the actual poster looks like it was designed with a criterion cover yeah. in mind. <laughs> you, can, you can picture the c in the corner so easily but as of yet nothing has been okay uh, sorry i couldn't announced. remember if it had just been announced or not but it'd be nice to get it must have been something um, else because at the moment it and panic room are the only two finchers that aren't uh aren't available so let's get those please get them out Nice. This this podcast is always about Blu-rays at, at its heart. <laughs> That's why we're here. Mm-hmm. Nice. Okay. Well, um, should we throw it back to Justin's question? I think so. Yeah. So, movies that you would give five stars to, but there's just an one element that keeps you from doing that. Do you have any? So I have uh, <clears throat> two. Uh, one is the Mike Lee movie Naked with um, David Thewlis who I think is brilliant in the film. And it's just like this, this like nasty nihilistic character. And he's like mesmerizing to watch. Um, and the movie's got like some amazing dialogue, but it also has this like dickhead landlord character who is not bad in and of itself, but he feels like he's more out of something like American psycho, something really satirical than like the sort of just gritty grounded movie. And it just feels like there's a conflict there. However, I also feel like when I rewatch Naked, it's just going to be five stars because it really stuck with me. <laughs> so um, and the other film is a movie I watched for the first time recently called Mephisto, which is a Hungarian film, but it's really about a German actor um, in the 1930s who basically becomes a conformist to the Nazi party as it takes power, um, even though he at the beginning of the film is, an- is supposedly anti-Nazi and supposedly friends with socialists. He very quickly lets those values go um, if it means his own success. And then as the Nazi power, Nazi party takes more and more power, he becomes more trapped and more subservient. And it's sort of this like, you know, he sells his soul and weighing the conflict of it. It's a brilliant film with a brilliant performance and it's really harrowing, but it's based on a novel that was written in like the late thirties. So it ends just as the war is really starting to take shape. And the, the ending, which is abrupt is on its own, is really, really powerful. But it's also like, it feels like the story is incomplete, that we don't see the, like how this character processes the war, how they process the aftermath of the war, how they're treated by the allies, what their legacy is. Like, I don't know. It feels like that should be a part of it. Hmm. It was four and a half for me. Still a brilliant film, though. Um, by the time this goes out, it will no longer be playing on Criterion Channel, but if you can find it, watch it. It's amazing. Cool. Um, I, don't, I had a tough time tra- kind of figuring this one out. I did pick a more recent movie, which is uh, one that came out this year, Everything Everywhere All at Once, mm. which I think is close to being great. But there's something about there's something about the humor. Not all the time. Like there were times when I was absolutely laughing, rolling on the, on the floor, laughing almost. Uh, but there's other times where the humor is just a little too, like, oh, so th- that's so random kind of humor. I was going to say that exact expression. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then there's, of course, like some some gross out stuff that just doesn't jive with mm-hmm. me very well. And so I think because the humor is not quite on the same wavelength that I am, I can't really claim it as, as uh, like, 
the best of the year or anything like that. It's fair. Um, yeah, mine are a little bit more just things that personal taste ones. So the other one might be honestly gory movies tend to do this for me <laughs> like like overly gory movies something like midsummer mm. that turns me off a bit but at the same time so much about that movie just intrigues me so much that i i love it but i don't give it the full five stars just because there's some really disturbing stuff in there that i'm that, surprised uh, with that one though because there is maybe it's because like we have different calibrations for our gore <laughs> intake <laughs> but i remember those moments you're talking about and they are striking but they're pretty few and far between like there's not that much it might be it's like the old I people just, who jump basically is it i just I, my memory it's of not it. even that it's more it's more the disturbing nature especially with let's say the people so to speak that they put in the hut at the end oh, okay. and then you know Fair. various uh circumstances they have found themselves in it's just there's some really disturbing stuff there uh, but at the same time that's also part of its appeal right it's odd appeal so but well, that's always an interesting thing where it's like it kind of what we've been talking about in terms of like rationalizing these things we don't like of uh understanding why something's there and even seeing the value in it but still not liking it sort of a fundamental right. part of being critically engaged with the movies you're you're watching yeah so yeah awesome cool that was a good discussion overall yeah i hope you guys liked it out there yeah and if if you haven't go watch our uh, moments we liked for movies we don't which is the counterpart to this Mm -hmm. which is like back in like episode 18 or 19 or something so now we just got to do moments we love and movies we're lukewarm about <laughs> moments that are lukewarm and in movies we love like we just you know cover all the spectrum of emotion <laughs> this could be the podcast now <laughs> exactly oh, man yeah quantifying every emotional reaction to scenes from movies that we either like or don't like <laughs> scenes that are yeah. funny but not like too funny like they're more like ha huh, rather than ha ha you know <laughs> get very very specific exactly <laughs> one hot <ha> movies <laughs> yeah <laughs> we count how many chuckles we have <laughs> i do feel like that sometimes when i'm like writing a review for a comedy where it's like there's a difference between saying it made me laugh it made me chuckle um it made me roar with laughter and then it's like <laughs> i feel so silly <laughs> oh man it's cool. fine okay so uh yeah let us know everybody out there so tweet at us at cinema underscore seconds because this is kind of a fun one to think about right so what are some of your favorite movies and what are some moments from those you don't like it's an interesting exercise i think so yeah absolutely and uh also yeah email us cinema in seconds at gmail.com if you guys have a listener question out there let us know yeah we'll answer it it might take us four weeks but we will answer it yeah (laughs) <laughs> and thanks justin for your question yep. yeah they've been really good ones um yeah. cool so awesome well yeah. i guess we'll wrap her up just so okay well thanks for listening everyone i've been ian and i'm daniel we'll see you next time yeah.